Well, amen, church family. Good to see you here this morning, and I hope you're ready to dive back into Daniel because as crazy as last week was, it just gets crazier for the rest of the book. And so I invite you, if you've got your Bible or if you don't, to use the pew Bible in the pew back in front of you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. We come to a, uh, and I'm, I'm excited about coming to this passage because uh, there will be a lot of things I suspect many of us are unfamiliar with in it. Uh, but because of that, we got to cover a lot of ground. So there's no fancy intro or question. We're just going straight to Daniel. Look with me, Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Now, this is going to set our context up for us. Uh, you, you'll remember that the previous, the previous chapters said with, with the vision of, of all of world history from Babylon to the return of Christ happens in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So God shows Daniel something, and then we've now jumped ahead two years later. We're in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, sometime around 550, 549 B.C., after the events of Daniel 4, but still years before the events of Babylon's fall in Daniel 5. Now, what's going on in world history at this time is Babylon is still the preeminent world power, but, but to, to the north, to, toward Persia, there's a man by the name of Cyrus who is going to break out of his allegiance with the Medes and he is going to take steps right around this time to form a dual empire known as the Median Persian Empire. All of this is going to happen around this time, and it's going to cause the leadership in Babylon to begin to grow anxious. And in their anxiety, they're going to send out some correspondence to the kingdom of Lydia and to the kingdom of Egypt to form a coalition to stand against Persia in case Persia continues to grow mighty and powerful. It's going to be around this time that Daniel is around the age of 70, still faithfully serving the Lord, and, and, and he gets a vision that is subsequent, meaning it follows after chronologically in terms of he had this vision first, this vision second, but, but this vision is going to to sit upon and come out of. It's going to elaborate on everything we looked at last week with Daniel 7. It's going to tie to it. So look with me. Here's the vision. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the providence of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. He, so he says, in this vision, all of a sudden, I looked around me, and I found myself in Susa, which is 220 miles east of Babylon. It's the capital of Elam, which would be uh, modern-day Iran. This would go on to be the, the place of the winter residence for the Persian kings. Later, Persian kings would move the entire administrative capital of the Persian Empire to Susa. Susa's representative of Persian power. From a, from a modern historical perspective, if you've ever heard of the Law Code of Hammurabi, Susa is where they discovered it 100 years ago. So Susa, he finds himself in this vision in a place which is going to come to be at the core of, of, of Persia. By the way, Susa will also be uh, the home of Esther and Nehemiah. So he finds himself there and he says, And I looked in my eyes and, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long 
but one was longer than the other, or the two horns were high and one was higher than the other, with the higher one, the longer one, coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased himself. Now, remember from last week where he's having these prophetic visions where beasts equal kingdoms, and for the most part, horns equal kings or rulers, okay? And so he sees a beast. Now, we don't know exactly what the beast means, and we don't exactly know why one horn is higher than the other, but, but we see that there's clearly a beast. There is representative of a kingdom that, that moves to the west, that moves to the north, that moves to the south, and obliterates all the other beasts in front of it. All the other kingdoms fall in front of this kingdom, and, and no one can stop. So Daniel's watching, and then it says, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west. Further out west, he saw another beast. A male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, a reference to it moving swiftly and fast. And this goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram, which had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled the ram to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. So he sees another kingdom coming, a kingdom symbolized by a goat coming, rushing out of the west, covering the whole earth moving faster, so, so fast as his feet didn't even touch the ground. It had this one obvious mighty horn between the eyes and an in, in animosity, wrath, anger. The goat rushes the ram and destroys the ram, and there's none to rescue the ram from the power of the goat. The male goat magnified himself exceedingly. As soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place came up four conspicuous horns, toward the four winds of heaven. So whoever this ruler is that the horn symbolized, at the height of his power, he's going to be broken. And in his place, four horns come. I told you, when's the last time you heard this much talk about rams and horns and goats in church? I texted McGinty earlier this week, and I said, if you need a sermon title, it's Rams, Goats, and Horns, Oh My. <laughs> and we're just getting started. Now, out of these four horns... Here's what Daniel observes, verse 9, one of those horns came forth out of one of them. So you got one horn's broken, four horns come back, and out of one of those horns, a little horn grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, towards the beautiful land. That would be the promised land. It grew up to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars fell to the earth, and it trampled them down. Even, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. On account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice. It will fling the truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper, or literally, it will accomplish everything it sets out to do. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one, talking about angelic beings, said to that one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings, 
then the holy place will properly be restored. So here's what Daniel sees. He sees the goat comes, beats the ram, the horn of the goat breaks down, four horns raise up. Out of one of those horns comes at first a small, seemingly insignificant horn that grows mighty. So great is his might that he, he grows up towards the host, it says the host of heaven and cause some of the stars to fall. Now, it's an interesting little phrase, and most of the time in Scripture when we see host of heaven, we are referring to, to angels, to angelic beings, to supernatural beings. Here, however, is one of several places where the, the emphasis, and we know this from what we're going to see later in the chapter as well as later on in the book of Daniel, where by host of heaven, what he's referring to are God's people the holy people, the, the stars falling down and trampled. I mean, this horn is going to rise up against God's people and is, and is going to, to trample God's people. Not only is He going to trample God's people, He's going he's to, in His mind, be equal with the commander of the host, that'd be God Himself. He's going to remove regular sacrifice. And all of this is because verse 12 says that, that the host, God's people, on account of their transgression that this horn has ultimately come against them as a response to their own sin, their own transgression, and, and, and that the truth will be flung to the ground. This horn will seemingly prosper. And in all of this, there's a conversation between angelic beings going, how long will, this, will the regular worship of God's people be stopped? And it's for 2,300 days. So it says, when Daniel, when I saw this vision, I sought to understand it. No joke. If that's, what you, uh, if that's what you saw in the middle of today, I would hope you would try to understand it as well. What, what, a, what a time. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man, and I heard the voice of a man cry out, and he called out and said, and this is the first time you will hear an angel named in all Scripture, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened. And I fell on my face, but he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. So Daniel's there. He's trying to understand what all he's just seen. Uh, did he just have a really bad meal for lunch? Or, or is, is God trying to communicate something to him? And he hears a voice command one of these angelic beings who, whose name is Gabriel. Should ring a bell. Gabriel's going to be the one who appears to Mary with good news and glad tidings about the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and Gabriel's going to show up, and we see a very normal response when human beings meet angels. It's not, wow, your wings are pretty. Where's your harp? It's terror. And he falls on his face, and Gabriel says, hey, Daniel, don't worry. I, I'm here. You've seen a vision of something that pertains to the end. I, I'm here to help you understand it. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep, and my face touched the ground. Means you can fall asleep in anything, church family. <laughs> but he touched me, made me upright, and he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur for the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now, this is clear. He says, I'm going to let you know what, what you've just seen. It pertains to pertains to the final period of the indignation, that word indignation in every place but one in Scripture refers to God's wrath, 
to God's righteous justice being poured out on sin. So whatever this vision pertains to, it pertains to some way in which God's righteousness, God's dealing with sin is going to be poured out and it's gonna be poured out at a certain end of a certain period. So here's what he says. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now, here's what's interesting. Did you know that the king, when he would line up in front of the Persian armies, would carry with him a golden ram's head? The ram had one horn that was higher than another. A lot like last week, we saw the bear who was on one side higher than another. The bear's media Persia, the ram is media Persia. In the Median Persian Empire, the Median Kingdom uh, was, was a long dominant world power in its area. The Persian Kingdom was relatively small, new, and insignificant. But Cyrus, through use of political maneuvering, when he brought them into an alliance, the Persian half of the empire would be the greater, more powerful part of the empire. Hence, why one horn is newer but higher than the other on the ram. And the Persian empire, you notice it says the ram went westward, northward, southward. You want to guess what the Persian empire conquered? Westward, northward, southward, not eastward. This would be the Persian kingdom that would rise up, that would defeat Babylon in, in just over a decade, and that would come to be the world power uh, under Cyrus, who's God's chosen instrument, according to Isaiah, to ultimately take the Jews who are in exile and restore them back to the promised land. So, so it says, the ram which you saw, the two horns, represents the kings of Media and Persia. Then he says, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Now, remember last week, the third kingdom, the second kingdom was the lopsided bear, which corresponds to the uh, lop, lopsided horned ram. I don't know how we, we want to phrase that. Remember last week, the third beast was a leopard known for its speed, swiftness, and ferocity that had four wings, emphasizing how fast it would move, and it had four heads. And here we see, we, we saw last week that corresponds to Greece. Here we see the goat corresponds to Greece. Greece came from the west. Greece conquered the whole of the known world over the whole surface of the earth. Greece did it with a swiftness. It was as if they didn't touch the ground. Within 10 years, Alexander would lead Greece from as far west as Turkey and Egypt all the way as far east as Babylon and already have been halfway home on his journey back to Greece. It's a relatively short amount of time to come into power. The, 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 the horn is clearly a reference to Alexander the Great. Born in 536, uh, 536 B.C., taught by Aristotle, becomes king at 20, will die at 32 in the city, ironically, of Babylon. He will conquer and bring a new level of empire the world has never seen. But what is key, what Alexander is going to do, is he's going to usher in a process called Hellenization 
where his belief and the belief of the Greeks was if we take our culture, our language, our philosophy, our way of life, our religion, and instead of of just obliterating all the peoples we conquer, let's educate them in it. We will root out the barbarian from the barbarian and we will all be one. He begins this process of Hellenization, of starting schools, of teaching the language. It says that right at the height of his power, right as Alexander comes to the height of his power, he dies suddenly. And four kings, his kingdom, the Greek empire is broken up into four parts. We saw that last week. But not even any one of those parts ever had the same level of power or might as Alexander. All this corresponds so far to history. Now here's what it says. It says, after this happened, the Greek empire is divided in four. The latter period of their rule, when the transgressors, or that is the rebels, have run their course, have finished their transgressing, a king will arise, insolent, meaning stone-faced. He is going to be a harsh king, merciless, skilled in intrigue. He's going to be cunning. And, and I hate to use the word wise because wise has good connotations. He's going to be skilled in political intrigue. He's going to know how to maneuver. He's going to know how to, how to work people, how to manipulate. It says his power will be mighty but not by his own power, meaning this horn is going to have exceedingly great power, and it's not going to be because of what he has as a human. There is going to be some supernatural power behind him. And the, in, the inference in that passage is not that that power is of the Lord, but is of the forces of darkness. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree he will bring devastation and destruction. He will prosper and perform His will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. He's going to target God's people and bring destruction. And, and through His shrewdness, through His own deceitfulness, He's going to cause deceit to succeed. He's going to create a culture in which deceit and falsehood reign, where the deceitful are able to get away with whatever they want. And it says He will destroy many while they are at ease. There's going to come a point of destruction where everybody thinks things are okay. We're secure. We're safe. And this, this ruler is going to usher in a period of unparalleled destruction. It says he will oppose even the prince of princes, meaning he will stand and oppose God himself. But he will be broken without any human agency. Even this wicked ruler who will seem unconstoppable, he's going to be defeated, but not by any human hand. Says the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret. That is, lock it up, preserve it, for it pertains to many days in the future. Now, here's what you need to know, church family. I'm to really understand this passage and ultimately ask the question, how does it impact us? There is some history that most of us are not familiar with that we need to understand. You see, as Alexander brought in that, that process of Hellenization, like anything in this world, there are goods and bads to it. The fact that there would be a common language spoken throughout the majority of the world is not a bad thing. Many, many of you are in business. Is it, does it not make business easier when we can all speak the same language? 
Not only that, but if you're preparing to share the good news of the gospel and that news needs to go out quickly, would it not aid the sharing of the gospel if everybody could speak a common language? And it would, not, would it not aid the speaking of the gospel if that common language was the most perfect human language ever conceived to express abstract thought? Yes, there's positives. There's also negatives. Greek culture would value the gymnasium, an athletic school for boys. Which is, well, that doesn't sound too bad. At the gymnasium, the young men would, before engaging in in any kind of game or contest, they would invoke prayers to pagan deities. And then they would go about their contest completely nude. There would be pagan gods who are worshipped. There would be philosophical ideas like dualism, which says that we are trapped in the physical and the only thing that matters is the, the they would not use the word spiritual. That would, that would be reading, reading Christianity back onto it. But what only matters is the unseen, that, uh, th- this other higher realm that you must be separated, which runs contrary to Scripture, church family. We've talked about this on Wednesday nights tons. God is concerned about the physical and the invisible, the physical and the spiritual. It's why when Jesus comes back, it's not a... Sp- spiritual kingdom. It's a new heaven and a new earth where we who are part spirit and part flesh will have resurrected bodies that are perfect. And there's our sorts of, when you begin to create that dualism, it starts to create, well, if all that matters is the spiritual, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's not sinful to engage in whatever sexual desires I have with my body because the body doesn't matter. All God's concerned about is the spiritual. There were dangerous ideas that came with Hellenization. And the Jewish people, some would recognize and go, these things are are wrong. Sure, we'll learn the language so we can talk and communicate and do business, but these things are problematic. But there were many in the Jewish people that went, no, we can make these things work. These connect with the Old Testament. Look, this is, this is, we should embrace this. We should do this. We should take this on. Hence, when it says that the, the time of indignation, that the transgressors, the rebels have run their course, what it's referring to would be in this time after the Jews have come back from exile several hundred years later where many of God's people would give in to false ideas that came with the process of Hellenization. And like God always does, God is going to course correct His people. He's going to deal with their sin and course correct them. And in this period, you're going to have a major historical event take place. You see, when you come to the end of the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament takes you a few years after the people of God, the Israelites, have come back to the Promised Land. They've rebuilt the temple. And then the Old Testament with the book of Malachi comes to a conclusion. And in between the conclusion of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew is a period of about 400 years. We call it the intertestamental period, the time in between the Old and New Testament. In that time, there are no prophets. It's as if God is silent to His people. They still have the written word, but no prophets arise. That's why when John the Baptist steps up on the scene, everybody is flocking to him because there hasn't been a prophet in Israel in 400 years. And in this time, when the Greeks come and conquer, uh, conquer Israel, 
Initially, they're going to be under the kingdom of Ptolemy, the Ptolemaic kingdom. But in 198, in 198 BC, there's the Ptolemaic kingdom is going to be defeated, and now Israel will come under the rule of the Seleucid kingdom. Now, the high priest, he's not a fan of the Seleucids. He'd rather have the, the rule of the, the Ptolemaic. So the high priest is already butting heads with the new rulers. And several years, about 20 years will go by, and the king of the Seleucid kingdom will die. Now, his rightful heir is going to be held hostage in Rome, and his brother is going to make his way from Athens down into Antioch, and his brother who is skilled in manipulation and deception, who knows how to play a crowd, who's known for going out to the common folk and scattering money in the streets, who would step down out of the royal palace and go to the public bathhouse with the regular old folk, knew how to garner the support and do this. and. The man by the name of Antiochus IV, who would later give himself the additional title Epiphanes, God manifest. Antiochus Epiphanes comes to rule over Israel. And that's where it gets wild. That high priest who opposed the Seleucids He'll be murdered, assassinated in 171 B.C. His brother named Jason, who is a hardcore Hellenist, he's a Jew who says, bring all the Greek stuff, he will be placed on the, in the office of high priest because he promises the most money to Antiochus. The priesthood has now become thoroughly corrupted. Antiochus has his eyes on more territory. He's going to go, battle to, go to battle with Egypt. He's going to take his armies down to Egypt. But right before he does, there's going to be another man by the name of Menelaus, who's not even of a priestly tribe, who offers him more money than Jason. So he gives Jason the boot and puts the new guy on in the office of high priest. And then he leaves town. While he's gone, a rumor spreads that Antiochus has died in Egypt. And Jason leads a revolt. Well, Antiochus hears the news, and in 169, he comes marching back into Jerusalem with a fury. It says he ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercies those whom they met, to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, his men would kill 80,000 or, or excuse me, 40,000 were killed violently and, and 40,000 sold into slavery. And this was just the beginning. He would begin to say, you're no longer allowed to worship on the Sabbath. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you're going to be put to death. If you try to circumcise your children in accordance with law, capital offense, punishable by death, will not only kill you and your child, but will kill your whole family. And the details of how wicked Antiochus Epiphanes was are too great for me to continue sharing on a Sunday morning in a mixed crowd. It was a bloody time of persecution that was marked foremost by Antiochus Epiphanes marching up into the temple of God Most High going to the altar where sacrifices where sin were made, taking a pig and sacrificing the most unclean animal on God's altar, and then establishing the temple with an altar to the God of Zeus. 
Now, ultimately, Antiochus Epiphanes, this would spark a rebellion amongst some very loyal Jews who said, we're not going to bow down, we're not going to give in, we'll face death if we have to, we're not going to compromise our God. You would know these as the Maccabeans, and they would ultimately restore, they would recapture the temple and restore it on the 25th of the Jewish month of Kislev, which is what you and I know today as the celebration of Hanukkah. Antiochus Epiphanes, though, would be wicked for the rest of his time. There would be a period of about six, a little over six really rough years, specifically a little, a little under three and a half years of absolute terror for the Jewish people. And while, and, and, and records differ, but while he was out on a campaign to the east in great battle, he seems to have come down with some kind of severe abdominal, abdominal, abdominal pain and he would die on the side of the road at no human hand. Now you go, wow, pastor, that's a whole lot of history. I came for a sermon, not a history lesson. <laughs> yes, and here's why you need to understand the history lesson. Why is this passage in God's Word? It doesn't pertain to the end of times. Now, you could say, well, maybe it kind of does. I mean, Antiochus Epiphanes has a little horn. He's different than the little horn of chapter 7, but he certainly seems to embody what, what the coming Antichrist will be like and will do. Yes, there, there, there's a lot of similarities there. You're right. But, but specifically, the, the primary fulfillment of this prophecy, it's already happened. Why is it in Scripture? Well, certainly it reminds us of what we've seen all throughout the book of Daniel, that regardless of the state of our world, our God is in fact sovereign. He is in fact on His throne. He's so well on His throne that He can tell you down to extremely specific details what will happen in the course of human affairs. What will feel like persecution and hardship and chaos will not be anything other than what God has already seen. It reminds us that God is sovereign. It reminds us that God is faithful. He's faithful to protect his people. Would some of his people die under Antiochus? Yes, but did you notice? The Jewish people survived. When you and I look back at the course of church history as we're doing on Wednesday nights, you will see persecution rise and persecution fall and, and persecution come and persecution go and, and there is no reason especially when you look at the early church, that the church should have survived. Yet what do you find? Even in the face of the severest persecution where brothers and sisters are put to death in horrible ways, not only does the church survive, it grows. Because God is faithful to protect and preserve His people. But here's what I want to hone in on very specifically. God is faithful to prepare His people. Did you, catch what, did you catch what Gabriel said ultimately at the end? It's easy to miss it because it's, it seems so minor. The vision of the evening and mornings, which I've been told is true, but, but keep the vision secret or, or lock it down, preserve it, for it pertains to many days in the future, meaning this. Well, everything I'm telling you, Daniel, is to prepare people who don't even live yet to do two things. If they're the ones guilty of transgression, to repent and if they're not guilty of the transgression, but they're struggling under suffering and sorrow, to remain faithful. God is faithful to prepare His people. We, we've seen it all throughout, church family. We've seen it all throughout. 
all throughout the book of Daniel. He's faithful to prepare Daniel to go to Babylon. He's faithful in Babylon to prepare Daniel to stand before the king. He's faithful to prepare Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego to go in the flame. He's faithful to prepare Daniel to call out the king of Babylon, the handwriting on the wall. He's fa- God is faithful to prepare us for what we will suffer. He's sovereign. He's faithful in church family in the face of opposition. We have to make sure that we do not capitulate to culture, to popularity, nor despair out of fearfulness. Instead, we remain faithful. That's the ultimate application of the passage. Church family, we, the reality is suffering and hardship are real for people living in a sinful world, period. As a Christian living in a broken world, we will all face persecution of some kind. Now, most of us in this country have never faced persecution like what we read about in Scripture. Now, many of us get fearful. We look at where things are headed in our country. We wonder, could that happen? Is that coming? What's, we, we see it around the world. It doesn't take much to go from living safely in your house to being hung at the gallows. You can look back at Nazi Germany to see how fast. We live in a day where all sorts of philosophies, ideas of modernism and postmodernism, where we're pushed with messages, it's all about materialism, what you can do, what you can accomplish, how much money you have. It's, it's all about sexuality, how you want to express yourself, how you want to gratify yourself and find satisfaction. It's, it's all about power. It's all about fame or it's all about whatever the scientist said is true, even if it flies in the face of what God's Word would say. Let me give you a really crazy practical one. We live in a culture where there's a whole industry, a multi-million dollar industry off of gossip. You see the magazines at every checkout stand, or at least you used to. When we had checkout stands, now it's all self. We have a culture that's built on gossiping about people. And we read it all. Understand, we live in a time where there, are, there is a pool, there are popular ideas that we are told, hey, give in, hey, be like this, hey, you, you can make this work with your Christian faith. Let's just, let's show you how you interpreted that verse wrong so now you can have God and your piece of cheesecake too. And church family, we've got to be clear today in light of the fact that our God is sovereign, in light of the fact that He is faithful, in light of the fact that He is the same God He's always been, and always will be, we must not bow down to the popular mandate of culture. You say, well, how do we do that? We're not here for the fame and applause of man. We weren't saved to reap the praise of man and the glory of this world. We were saved to reap the praise and glory of the Lord God. What seems vogue today, what seems like it's winning today is guaranteed to be exposed and die tomorrow. Antiochus seemed victorious and some Jews capitulated, yet he came to his end. Hitler seemed victorious, the church capitulated, and he came to his end. Lenin and Stalin seemed victorious, some capitulated, and they came to the end and everything changed. What was popular and right today may very well be wrong tomorrow. It's why we don't live by what's popular today. We live by what God has said in His Word. What are we to do? 
What are we to do? We, we don't capitulate to culture, but we rest upon the written word. And when life is loud and God seems silent, we fall back on what he's already said. We don't need a new word from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit already spoke the perfect will of God, and he wrote it down for us. There are questions, decisions that, that, that sometimes we're, we're wondering. It seems like God is silent. I don't know if I should take this job. I don't know if I should date this person. I don't know if, if, I, should, if I should jump in this conversation. Listen, if that job, if you know taking that job is going to require you to lie and break God's ethics, you don't have to pray about it and wait for a word. He's already told you the word. Have nothing to do with falsehood. If dating that person would cause you to yoke yourself to an unbeliever, you don't have to pray about it. He's already said don't do it. If jumping into that conversation would cause you to gossip and tear down and, and belittle someone, you don't have to pray about it. You just walk away because he's already said have nothing to do with gossip and foolish conversations. You see, church family, this passage was written for the people of God when they were living in a time where to them it seemed like God was silent and far removed. And God prepared them to be able to endure hardship if they would just believe and rest and walk in accordance with His written Word. Sometimes God's quote-unquote silence may actually be a test to see how pure our love is for Him, to see how strong our faith upon His Word is. It may expose holes that we like to ignore, but we must not give up when He seems silent. Instead, we press in. We press into Him. We press into His Word. We read His Word. We meditate on it. We pray it. We sing it. We live it all with and unto and in relationship with Him. We rest upon the written word when life is loud and God seems silent. And as we do that, here's the key. Look what it says. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Daniel saw a vision of what's coming, and it left him deeply concerned, just like the previous chapter. For those who have eyes open, some of us, it's, it's hard to look at what's going on and not catch a fearful vision of what we think is coming. Now, the truth is, we ought to stop right there. We don't know what's coming. Only God knows tomorrow. But you see, here's a man of faith, a man who walks with, with God into lion's dens, who sees this vision. It troubles him. And he sleeps. And watch what he does. Then I got up again and carried on about the king's business. Church family, in living in a world of opposition, we must not capitulate to culture. We must rest upon the written word, even when God seems silent, and we must remain faithful daily. There's no way to avoid emotions of fear when you look out at stuff in our world today. Daniel didn't avoid it. The question is not what the emotions of fear bring us to do. The question is whether we will rest those things down before the Lord, then get up and go about our job. We have lives to live, church family, and those lives we are called to be faithful to Jesus. We've been called to be faithful to share the gospel. Maybe faithfulness means you need to call and encourage a friend and breathe life into them. Maybe faithful means doing what's right, even the simplest things like putting the shopping cart up in the right place. 
even when no one is looking and there's nothing to gain. Faithfulness means loving our spouses and raising our children. Faithfulness means praying for God's movement to revive our churches and awaken our nation, even when it seems like everything is going wrong. We are not called to greatness, church family. We are called to faithfulness. Faithfulness in the most simple and practical of things. And the irony is when we get up and we set ourselves to walk with God faithfully, we'll be prepared because He'll prepare us. We'll discover His protection even when we didn't know we were in danger. As we walk faithfully, we'll experience His provision and not our stumbling attempts to try to provide for ourselves. The call is to set our eyes on Him. As we walk in faithfulness, we place ourselves in a, in a posture of humility where, where God's will will be done. As we set ourselves and our faces like a flint to walk faithfully, we will experience His provision. Church family, we must be faithful to pick up our crosses, to be good men and women like Christ, to be Christ-like men and women in our workplaces, in our school places, to be Christ-like men and women who carry the cross in every facet and corner of our society, from the corners of our house to the corners of our neighborhoods to, to the corners of our city to the corners of Congress. And over the course of being faithful, there may be some of us who don't experience deliverance this side of heaven. Paul was faithful. And sometimes he was supernaturally released from prison. And ultimately he was beheaded and entered into glory. Some of us I'm not trying to give a word that says suffering isn't hard. I'm not trying to give a word that we're all going to experience living. What I'm saying is we're called to be faithful. And in being faithful, some of us may not make it this in this world. And in the same token, in the course of being faithful, some of us, God may set in places we never dreamed we could be. And for such a time as this, God may call us to be like Esther and just be faithful and use us to save lives. But the question is not, is it a glorious death or are we unknown? The question is not, is it greater? The question is simply this. If we really understand that God is sovereign and faithful, He's in control and He's faithful to prepare, to protect, to provide, if we really understand these truths, if we really look at this passage and go, wow, look at what hundreds of years before God was always already doing to prepare His people to face an immense time of suffering. If we really understand all this, then church family, it means we reject and we refuse to capitulate to culture. It means when life is loud and God seems silent, we don't grow fearful and worrisome. We just commit to rest upon His Word, which then will enable us to pick up our crosses by His grace and strength of the Holy Spirit within us, to walk with Him faithfully in the most simple and basic of things every day. If you feel overwhelmed and swamped by the world, by your own life, if you feel like, I don't even know how to, how, to, how to grasp all these things, and I just encourage you, brother and sister, the call is simply be faithful. Be faithful to put this foot in front of the other. Be faithful to put this foot next. Be faithful. We don't get to decide what times we live in, but we do get to decide what to do with the time that God grants to us. And may we be found faithful. Jesus, we look to you just as you gave Daniel a vision where you laid out 
with such incredible precision, history that would unfold hundreds of years later, history that would come about not because life is fatalistic and there was no option, but because you who stands and sits on your throne outside of time can look down and you know the, the decisions that, that we will make as humans, and, and, and with clarity, you, you, you addressed all of it, Lord. And just like you did that, you, you have the same level of clarity of every one of our tomorrows, of the next decade, of, of the next however long there is left in this chapter of human history. And God, as we experience it in real time, as, as, as fear would very, be a very real thing that would either drive us to despair and hide or would drive us to capitulate for what we believe would be rest, but in fact is death. Lord, may we rest just soundly on your word, on what your word tells us about who you are. You are sovereign, you are faithful, you are gracious, you are mighty, you are powerful, you are just. And may you find us, Lord, in the sufficiency of your grace to wake up each day in awe of you and to walk faithfully. Holy Spirit, you know how you're moving. May we respond to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.